Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempadar. And I'm Josh Larson. You've been fighting the Harkonnens for decades. My family's been fighting them for centuries. And they were massacred alongside my father. We believe in Fremen. Let me fight beside you. A resistance far from Arrakis has sent the highly anticipated Dune Part 2 from its planned fall 2023 release to the spring of next year. But for now, at least, there are lots of other fall releases to be excited for. Including new films from Martin Scorsese, Sofia Coppola, and David Fincher. This week, it's our fall movie preview. And we continue our African cinema marathon with 1973's Tuki Buki. That and more, we believe in fair wages ahead on film spotting welcome to film spotting let's see if i remember how to do this josh it's been two weeks you know whenever there's a break you feel like you're starting completely from scratch yeah i mean we take a week off from time to time but two in a row is rare you you might be a bit rusty yeah i might be now that we've gotten my disclaimer out of the way I do want to thank you for holding down the fort the past couple of weeks. I'm actually jealous. Not only did you get to have Michael Phillips and Mariah Gates on, but you got to talk about two great films while I was away, including The Fugitive, which turns 30 this year. You talked about that with Michael, and then you talked about a movie I did see quite a few times on HBO as a youth, Risky Business, that's 40 this year. I do trust that everybody involved had only positive things to say about those two movies? I think so. I mean, to no one's surprise, The Fugitive, sturdy picture. It held up, right? Mm -hmm. But Risky Business, I think we both, Mariah and I, were surprised by some of the extra resonance we found compared to maybe what we remembered earlier. Yeah. Okay. I was already dying to listen. I haven't yet because I've got some viewing and reviewing to do before I check out those shows. But now you have me even more excited This week, we return to our African Cinema Marathon with another film that made last year's Sight and Sound 100 Greatest Films of All Timeless. That's 1973's Tuki Buki from Senegal's Jabril Diop Mambeti. The previous film in the marathon, Josh, as I'm sure you recall, 1965's Black Girl, that also made the Sight and Sound Top 100. We will get to that a bit later. Before we get into our fall movie preview, 
If you've ever gotten any value out of the show, followed along on one of our marathons, like we're doing right now, maybe enjoyed a sacred cow discussion, or was just turned on to a favorite film, please consider giving us a rating or a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Those ratings, those reviews, they're crucial for helping us to reach new listeners, which we always want to find new listeners. We want to thank a couple of folks who did leave us some reviews recently. R.T. Carr Jr., Sophie, who is a new film spotting family member in Quebec, and Y Skeleton Y, who's also in Canada. R.T. Carr Jr. wrote this in their Apple Podcasts review. Excellent podcast. I've been a movie buff for most of my life, and I thoroughly enjoy listening to Adam and Josh's discussions about new and classic movies. I met Josh at a film spotting meetup in Boulder, Colorado, and found him just as personable, knowledgeable, and humorous in person as he comes across in the podcast. You pulled it off, Josh. Well done. Wow. What a relief. I especially enjoyed how he dealt with my fake complaint of needing to have a film spotting family subscription to listen to their bonus review of one of my favorite movies, Broadcast News. Hey, we're just being smart businessmen. Exactly. We got to keep the show afloat. We're going to put some good content behind the paywall every now and again. I think I had to threaten revoking uh, the complimentary beer that I had offered at that meetup <laughs> when I heard that complaint. But no, that was a good gathering. And thank you so much for this review. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you to everyone who rated and reviewed us. Thank you, RT. Share your comments on Apple Podcasts or, you know, tell a friend. You could share some kind words on your social networks. And now that we're done with those plugs, we will finally mention that you can always support us by joining the Film Spotting family, where you get to listen early and ad free. You get Sam's weekly newsletter. You get a monthly bonus show. We'll talk a little bit more about August bonus show later. And you get access to the complete archive of episodes with all the bonus shows and various whatevers we've published over the years. It's over 1,200 audio files, filmspottingfamily.com. Fall movie preview time, a great top five list for me to come back for, not only because sometimes they are a little bit easier than when we're really diving into a super serious subject, but also I just enjoy them. I like these previews in the form of questions, the way we do them. And I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, Josh, when I say this, I do feel like as I consider some of our previews over the years that we have a tendency to fall in love with a question and how clever we think we're being a little more than the films themselves or how much we actually anticipate them. We end up not even discussing a good one or two movies, I feel like, on each of our lists every year. And sometimes we don't even see them. I really thought about this when I was forming my questions, and I think I've got an assortment of films here that I'd be shocked if we didn't talk about on the show. I'm anticipating highly all of these. What about you? Yeah, I think it's a function of wanting to avoid the same titles everyone is mentioning, first and mm -hmm. foremost. So that means highlighting some of the other intriguing movies that will be coming out. And yeah, I think a great example is I just watched within the last two weeks, they cloned Tyrone, which I had a question about for our summer movie preview. Mm -hmm. So I think you're right. We don't always get to all of these because they aren't necessarily those big, hugely anticipated titles. But hopefully at some point we will catch up with each of these because there are certainly movies that we hope we get to see when we get the time. 
Yeah, and it's also possible we're not going to ask a question about a fall movie that we've already asked a question about. If you go back to our right. year preview in January, I, of course, had a question about Michael Fassbender in David Fincher's The Killer. You did as well. We both had questions about Chalamet and Wonka. I had a question for sure, I don't know about you, about Dune, which we won't get that answer now until 2024 sometime. I also had a question about... David Gordon Green's Exorcist, which now has a title, The Exorcist, colon, Believer, that comes out this fall. It could make my list again, except I already know the answer to my question from January, despite not having seen it. No, David Gordon Green can't make interesting movies again. I've seen the trailer. I've already ruled it out. You're out based on the trailer. Wow. Harsh. Okay. I'll take your word for it. We are looking at movies here, our usual... Note up front, when we talk about fall, it might not overlap completely with the listener at home as they're doing their own fall movie preview. We go from Labor Day up to Thanksgiving. We think about that Thanksgiving and Christmas period as its own holiday movie season. We're just looking at early September up through late November. Josh, your first question. Number five, will the creator prove that AI can make for a compelling villain? in 2023. Now, for me, one of the weaknesses of the otherwise pretty thrilling Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 was the bad guy, or the bad entity, as uh, it was called, this faceless artificial intelligence program that Tom Cruise... That screen was terrifying. It was was terrifying, Josh. Come on. Yeah. Still having nightmares about that, right? Well, turning to the creator, this movie has a lot of promising elements. It's co-written and directed by Gareth Edwards. Edwards made Monsters, Godzilla, and then Rogue One. I think most people are even higher on those films than I am, but I do appreciate them as intriguing and big-scale sci-fi endeavors. John David Washington here is headlining. An actor, I think, from my perspective, still finding his way a bit, but absolutely has shown tons of promise and given some knockout performances. So... I'm definitely intrigued when I see that he is going to be in a film. Yet, the creator still has that AI factor. Here's the imdb.com plot description. It describes the creator as, quote, a post-apocalyptic thriller involving a future impacted by a war between humans and AI. Ten years ago today, the artificial intelligence created to protect us detonated a nuclear warhead in Los Angeles. This is a fight for our very existence. Now, can Edwards and his co-writer Chris Weitz make that AI element intriguing? We will see. Over on my Larson on Film Facebook page, when I asked what fall movies people were anticipating, Cortland Funk said this, The creator looks like it has potential to be something special or a pretentious waste of time. And then on the social media platform, formerly known as Twitter, Ryan Thomas, you can find him and looks around. Ryan said this, Gareth Edwards and an original sci-fi film? I'm in. So yeah. For me, that originality aspect, this isn't a reheat of any kind, it isn't drawn from any IP, that also is intriguing, gives me hope for the creator, which opens September 29. I'm in as well because of Gareth Edwards' original material, John David Washington, everything you said. I almost asked a question about the creator as well, thinking about AI as a trend. My question would have been something like, 
how many films after the creator will it take before we're just done? Where we're just ready to completely Yeah, it kind of almost feels never like reckon with right? this again. Yeah. My number five fall movie question is what happens when horror and comedy is explicit in the historical fiction of Pablo Lorraine? The movie that's new from director Pablo Lorraine is El Conde, which translates to The Count. A critic, you and I both might know, Josh, said this about Lorraine's last film, Spencer, a condensed biopic that also functions as a psychological horror film. And later in the review, working with screenwriter Stephen Knight, Lorraine also adds a ghostly element by having Diana haunted by the figure of Anne Boleyn. More spookiness comes courtesy of the dissonant, omnipresent score by Johnny Greenwood and misty, morose cinematography by Claire Matone. It all adds up to a claustrophobic portrait of a woman trying to hold it together while forces both historical and personal conspire to drive her mad. That critic was you, Josh Larson, and we both said similar things about the employment of horror techniques when we talked about Spencer on the show. And I think it applies to Jackie as well. I liked both of those films. I didn't love either of the films. And I'm wondering if El Conde might be my opportunity to really embrace Pablo Lorraine. And here he is again doing work of whatever you want to call it, historical fiction, historical drama, not really biographical drama like Jackie and Spencer, because this is leaning into the fictional aspect. But we're back to where... Lorraine started in terms of his breakout film, No, which was about the Chilean dictator Augustus Pinochet. And here he is reimagined Pinochet as a vampire, a vampire who is 250 years old, and he's really not sure he wants to continue. And if you watch the trailer, the thing he seems to be most bothered by is that everyone remembers him as a thief. And he'll acknowledge all the other atrocities that he committed, but he really hates that people think of him and remember him as a thief. So there is undeniable humor here. Lorraine is going for jokes in that trailer. You'll see a part where he says, it's true, I've made mistakes, long pause, and he says, accounting mistakes. <laughs> and we're talking about Pinochet. You also have Ed Latchman, longtime collaborator, with Todd Haynes as the cinematographer shooting in black and white. So that's that's got me intrigued. But really, that that question is key for me. He's always used horror. He's made films that feel so claustrophobic and make you feel uneasy. And now he's not only leaning into humor, but he's leaning into the horror in terms of this pretty conventional trope of a central figure who is a vampire. Yo no quiero vivir 250 Porque me trataron de ladrón. A un soldado se le puede decir que es un asesino, pero no que es un ladrón. Pero robaste, ¿o no? It comes out September 15th on Netflix. I love this idea for a film. Uh, you know, this slanted approach, way of approaching a historical figure. So promising, so many ways it could go. And I think I'm similar to you when it comes to Lorraine. Uh, Jackie, mixed feelings about appreciated Spencer a bit more, but felt like I was behind maybe most critics or a lot of critics that I follow. So yeah, hopefully this will be where I fully get on board with Lorraine as well. All right. My number four question, will Quiz Lady be another great 
female-led 2023 comedy. Now, this one I didn't see myself, but I heard good things about Joyride. That was Adele Lim's comedy about four Asian-American friends on a road trip through China. And just last week, Mariah Gates and I discussed with enthusiasm Bottoms, Emma Seligman's high school sex comedy starring Rachel Sennett and Ayo Adebri. This fall, we're getting Quiz Lady. Stars Aquafina and Sandra Oh as estranged sisters. How about that pairing? Not only are they two huge talents, both in dramas and comedy, I think, but the plot here sounds ripe for laughs as well. Again, IMDb describes it this way. A game show obsessed woman and her estranged sister work together to help cover their mother's gambling debts. Looks like part of their plan is to get Aquafina's character onto a game show to make as much money as possible. I'm pretty much in from there, but look at the strong supporting cast here. Will Ferrell, Jason Schwartzman, Tony Hale. This is directed by Jessica Yu, who has previously worked in TV. Looks like she did an episode of Fosse Verdon. I don't know if you saw that, Adam. I think I did. I remember you watching that. So Mm -hmm. she did an episode there. Also a couple episodes of Billions and This Is Us. The script is by writer and actor Jen D'Angelo. So some well-established talent. Some folks new to features, and it looks like it could add up to a very fun movie. We just watched on a whim last night, Bridesmaids, which, you know, paved the way for a fresh wave of female-led comedies. Bridesmaids, by the way, absolutely still holds up. I don't think I've seen it since a few years after its release. Yeah, hopefully Quiz Lady will be in that tradition. It opens November 3. Looks like this will be on Hulu. Perfect transition to my number four question and the movie in question is definitely female-led from its director to its star and of course its central subject the movie is priscilla and my question is will priscilla be sofia coppola's next great movie about a young queen and pop music i suppose there's another question here about whether we're ready for more elvis after the great austin butler oscar campaign wars of 2022 but of course this movie isn't really about elvis and that's the point this is the story of their romance and their marriage through the eyes of priscilla presley from meeting on a german army base and having their courtship to their time together as a married couple at Graceland. It's got two people in Kaylee Spaney and Jacob Alordi, who are not household names, playing figures who, of course, are household names. And that question really does go back to Marie Antoinette, where I'm thinking about this version of a young queen she gave us there of French royalty. And here we have what really qualifies as American royalty. Elvis was the king and Priscilla was his queen. The pop music part, of course, is obviously Elvis and his music, but what reminded me so much of Marie Antoinette was watching the teaser trailer and hearing that anachronistic pop music. Now, that music may or may not actually appear in the film. And from what I read, the soundtrack is composed and performed by the band Phoenix. So 
Definitely not Elvis. Definitely not from the time of Elvis. That's a band that's led by Coppola's husband, Thomas Mars. But the song from the trailer is a 1992 track called How You Satisfy Me by the Australian band Spectrum. Again, it just evoked that sense. Not as not as boppy, if you will, Josh, but it evoked that same sense of watching a story that's taking place in another era, but is employing this very modern music. And Elvis's story has been told so many times, we have never gotten the Priscilla perspective. Who better to offer up that point of view than Sofia Coppola? I am so excited for this movie. And it, it does make me think, as you describe it, Adam, you know, I would love to see a whole genre, not of more biopics about famous men, but sideways biopics about the women who lived yeah. with these famous men. I know, And it's not like Coppola is doing it for the first time. You, you mentioned Pablo Lorraine's Jackie, right? That's kind of in the same mold, but that's what's very exciting about this for me uh, to the point that I have a follow-up question here. And it's related, as you said, to Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. I'm wondering, can Priscilla upstage Elvis? I mean, it's hard for me to think about this movie apart from the Lerman one. And no matter how we all felt about that picture as a whole, I think we all fell for Austin Butler, right? Or at least fell for his hips in the title role. And that included the Oscars, which did nominate him best actor. Priscilla here resting on the shoulders of another relative unknown who you mentioned, Kaylee Spaney. And I think, you know, she's been around for a bit. Pacific Rim Uprising is in her credits. The Craft Legacy had a recurring role on the Kate Winslet series, Mayor of Easttown. But, you know, this is obviously going to put her much more in the spotlight. And if the Academy goes for her as much as they did Butler, maybe Priscilla can return Coppola to Oscar prominence, maybe even equal or possibly beat the eight nominations that Elvis did earn. Don't forget... Sofia Coppola has an Oscar win, Best Original Screenplay for Lost in Translation, and two other nominations for that movie. I certainly think she's been doing Oscar-worthy work since. It would be nice to see the Academy come back around her way. Now, I do have one reservation about this. Sorry if you mentioned it, Adam, and it slipped past me, but the actual Priscilla Presley here, not only a consultant, which is sort of common— in movies like this, but listed as a producer, as this is based on her 1985 memoir. And I just feel like, for me at least, the track record of the subjects being involved in these sorts of historical fiction films, track record is not always great. At the same time, part of me thinks that even if Marie Antoinette had consulted on Marie Antoinette, we still would have gotten something that was purely Sofia Coppola. She just mm-hmm. has that unique of a sensibility. So I'm hoping that is going to be the case here, as as you said, Priscilla opens October 27. Kaylee Spaney, I didn't realize until you said it, just looked it up. She was in Mayor of Easttown, and I remember her character in that performance quite well. That gives me even more hope for this film. We will finally see Priscilla. October 27th, it's an A24 release that's going to be out in select theaters. My number three movie question of the fall is, are long-form shorts really going to be a thing? I'm talking about The Wonderful World of Henry Sugar and Strange Way of Life. I don't think we've ever done a fall preview where I've noticed even one short movie getting a mention, much less two 
much less two from directors like, in the case of Henry Sugar, Wes Anderson, and in the case of Strange Way of Life, Pedro Almodovar. We are going to get, Josh, another Wes Anderson release this year, at least one more. It is a movie in Henry Sugar that comes in at 37 minutes. Going back to Roald Dahl, just like Fantastic Mr. Fox, you are the Wes Anderson guy on the show, despite my affection for him as well. So maybe you can clarify this for me. Maybe maybe even you have a question, which is, what is the wonderful world of Henry Sugar? That could have been my question. I really can't tell, even after reading multiple things about it. Is it 37 minutes long, but still a collection of short stories? Is he making a collection of short stories and Henry Sugar that we're getting the 37 minutes is just kind of the first installment of it. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's Wes Anderson. It's got a great ensemble, of course. Benedict Cumberbatch as the title character. Ray Fiennes is in it. Dev Patel, Ben Kingsley, Rupert Fred, and Richard Ayoade. It is going to debut, I think, at Venice. And then here comes Almodovar with a 40-minute short called Strange Way of Life. I didn't realize this until preparing for this list that he was actually in mind to direct Brokeback Mountain, the quote unquote gay cowboy movie. And of course would have been a fine choice though. Ang Lee did a pretty great job. And here he is making his gay Western with Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal about two cowboys that have this connection. They come together, they reunite over 20 years after they were first together. Get off, Joe! What are you doing? You never loved me. You never loved anyone in your life. Don't say that. Years ago, you asked me what two men could do living together on a ranch. I'll answer you now. Two great filmmakers, both making these 40-minute-ish films, and because we live in a world now where everything's being released on these streamers, they can put out these films. You wouldn't go to a theater. Well, and it turns out the Almodovar film is going to be released in theaters, so I have to be careful with what I say, but generally you wouldn't think about most people buying a ticket to go watch a 37-minute movie. But Henry Sugar is going to hit Netflix in September, actually September 27th. Strange, like I said, it looks like it's going to be released via Sony Pictures Classic on October 4th. I don't know how that will work, but I mentioned the directors, the cast, my guy Ethan Hawke there in the Almodovar, and I'm just curious about whether or not this is going to become something of a trend and how we're supposed to feel about it. And I think it's a positive thing in that maybe we're going to be able to see in the old model where things only went into a theater and you couldn't justify putting out a 35 to 40 minute movie. Maybe we missed out on some of these great directors exploring passion projects and telling stories that are really personal to them that they've always wanted to tell. Now they can. I do know that these are two projects so enticing that my instinct is, why are we getting these as features? <laughs> you know, I would, I, I would want the two hour or so version, but yeah, I'll, I will absolutely take what I can get. And I have not read the wonderful story of Henry Sugar. I've read a lot of Dahl, but not that one. I do know it's a collection of short stories. So how Anderson is going to deal with that, you know, I'm not exactly sure, but that's what the source material is like. So we will see. My number two question, are we ready for another movie from Emerald Fennel? I am still not entirely sure what to make of Fennel's promising young woman. This was... 
oh man, it was this heavily stylized late 2020 sensation that sort of snuck into the Oscar race, mm-hmm. got multiple nominations, kicked up enough discourse for five movies. And those nominations included Best Picture and Best Actress for Carrie Mulligan. She played a traumatized woman who was seeking vengeance on a hit list of men. The only thing I didn't know then about Promising Young Woman, which I wrote, was that Fennel has made something that shows impressive filmmaking promise and pulses with real pain. Which brings us to Saltburn, which looks promising and I think equally provocative. She is writing and directing here once more. And on IMDb, the plot is described this way. A student at Oxford University finds himself drawn into the world of a charming and aristocratic classmate who invites him to his eccentric family's sprawling estate for a summer never to be forgotten. You think you'll go home? Honestly? Home doesn't mean the same for me as it does for you, Felix. Well, why don't you come home with me? Come to Saltburn. So I don't know, maybe class politics, not sexual politics in the crosshairs here. Mulligan does return. Always a good sign. And she's going to be alongside Barry Keown, Rosamund Pike, and Richard E. Grant. Saltburn opens, Adam, as you were describing, our calendar, how we think about the calendar here. I'm realizing, and I knew this going in, that I'm I'm breaking the rule a little bit. I guess Thanksgiving is... This is November 24, which I think is maybe the day day after. Okay. All right. No, that counts. Good. Anytime right around Thanksgiving, you're good. Good. That's Saltburn again from Emerald Fennel. We'll see what we will get. I missed that one completely. I'm intrigued. My number two fall movie question I'll set up with this note from longtime listener Jonathan Metz, who wrote in to say, in light of Dune Part 2's delay, my question for the fall preview, what other new release could fill the sci-fi void in our hearts? The best candidate I've heard of may be Rebel Moon, although that's on Netflix and also a two-parter concluding in 24. So did Rebel Moon cross your desk at all, Josh? It did, but speaking of dates, I think this might be a Christmas release. It is. So I was going to get to that. We are going to disqualify Jonathan's entry here because Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon, yes, it's Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon, does open on December 22nd, part of that holiday movie season. I'll give you a brief synopsis if you're someone who isn't familiar with Rebel Moon when a peaceful colony on the edge of a galaxy finds itself threatened by the armies of a tyrannical ruling force. A mysterious stranger living amongst its villagers becomes their best hope for survival. I don't really tend to get excited by Zack Snyder movies, but Jonathan, I hear you. I'm going to give you two counters, though. My number two question is, which sci-fi romance will be more incisive about the mysteries of relationships, faux or fingernails? Faux is based on a book by Ian Reed. You may recall Ian Reed as the writer of the story that gave us, I'm thinking of ending things. And I loved burrowing into that film and thinking about Reed's intentions there. Now he's got an adaptation of his work that stars Paul Meskel and Saoirse Ronan. They're a couple who live on a farm that has been in Meskel's character's family for generations. And like Rebel Moon, we've got a stranger. A stranger shows up and has a proposal. There is a little bit of an indecent proposal aspect to it. Like a stranger shows up and says, hey, 
What if we did this? And it wreaks havoc. Do you want to live mundane lives? Or do you want to be part of something special and unique? You've been selected to live up there. <laughs> okay, well, you're wasting your time because we, we haven't even been on an airplane and she dated. I should, I should clarify. I'm talking about you here, Junior. Only you. That comes out October 6th via Amazon Studios. The director is Garth Davis, who made Lion and also Mary Magdalene in 2018, which I did not see, despite the fact that it starred Rooney Mara. Maybe Joaquin Phoenix even appeared in that, Josh. Yeah, that sounds it's right. Not one, it's not one we discussed on the show. I encourage folks, if they aren't already aware of Foe, to check out the trailer and dig in a little deeper. I think we're going to have a lot of people, Josh, who want to see it as well. They probably only needed to hear Saoirse Ronan and Paul Meskel, quite frankly. Fingernails doesn't have a trailer to watch yet, but it's also listed as a sci-fi film. How about this cast? And speaking of, I'm thinking of ending things, Jesse Buckley, Riz Ahmed, The Bears, Jeremy Allen White, Luke Wilson's in it. Also, Annie Murphy from Schitt's Creek. It is going to premiere at TIFF in September, but the general storyline here is that Jesse Buckley plays a woman who works at an institute whose project is to help people determine if the romance that they're a part of, if their coupling is actually genuine, which makes me think of another fairly recent, great sci-fi-ish couple movie, Charlie McDowell's The One I Love. As you know, I was a big fan of that film. This seems like a really provocative plot. You throw in that cast, and I think about both of those films together. We'll see which one reveals more about the nature of love, Josh. What casts for both of those? Mm -hmm. I mean, I am so curious, having belatedly, but recently finished at least, The Bear, seeing Jeremy Allen White on the big screen because his acting there is unlike anything I think I've seen in the last couple of years, mm -hmm. TV or, or features. So yeah, I'm not sure how big his role is going to be there, but I'm curious to see what he's doing in a different part. And man, Meskel, of course, we want to see whatever he does in Saoirse Ronan too. So yeah, those two both sound right up my alley, sort of Mm -hmm. relationship-based sci-fi i'm thinking right. about her something like her as well you know sure. a, gr a great tradition of uh, a sort of sci-fi film we don't think of immediately when science fiction comes to mind but has been mm -hmm. a rich subgenre. absolutely it has. yeah and i mentioned this but a reminder october 6th is when you can see foe limited release there october 27th is when fingernails is slated for a release that's on Apple TV Plus, I think it's going to hit select theaters as well on Friday, November 3rd. All right. My number one question for the fall movie season, what are Todd Haynes and Julianne Moore up to with May, December? Mm -hmm. I've known for a while that Haynes had a new movie this year. Always exciting. I also knew that he was reteaming for the fifth time with Julianne Moore. Even more exciting. I didn't know until looking into it for this list what May, December was about. And let me share for folks who were in my position. It turns out this is a riff on the 1997 scandal in which a school teacher, Mary Kay Latorno, pled oh, guilty yeah. to second degree rape of a child involving her 12 year old student. Then while awaiting sentencing, she gave birth to the student's child. Mm -hmm. Then 
after she served a number of years in prison, they married. Now, the movie, May-December, supposedly loosely based on this story, and it comes at it from a different angle. It catches up with this couple, fictionalized version, 20 years after the scandal, when an actress, played by Natalie Portman, comes to interview them as research for a part she's playing based on their past. Moore here plays the school teacher and convicted sex offender. So... <laughs> I now know what May December is about. Yeah, I didn't either. I am still not sure what Haynes is after here. I mean, this is this this is like to to die for directed by Todd Solins, maybe we're somewhere in the vicinity. I do trust Haynes. I mean, the likes of Carol, <laughs> Far From Heaven, and others. That has earned my trust, okay? And adding Portman to the mix only intensifies my curiosity. But this one, man, I'm just eager to find out how I'll respond, honestly, to May-December. What what sort of reactions, ruminations Haynes and Moore are after with this one? And we'll find out November 17 on Netflix is where we'll be able to find it. Mary Kay Letourneau is one of those names that I'll just remember for the rest of my life. I remember that whole scandal yeah. and all the news very vividly. Had no idea that that's the movie in whatever form it's taking that Julianne Moore and Todd Haynes kind of crazy, were making right? here. But I'm definitely on board for anything Haynes makes and that collaboration that they produce together. Now, you did say something like to die for via Todd Solons, and I'm going to have nightmares for the next week thinking about that. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> My number one fall movie question. This one's pretty predictable if you've heard of this film and you know the director. Has it really been almost eight years since John Carney blessed us with Sing Street? Or can we just go ahead and pencil in Flora and Son as my number one film of the year? This never pans out. Anytime I anoint a film during these previews as my number one yeah, film of the year, my it. surefire, invariably, I don't even really go for it that much. It's like I've set the expectations way too high. If anybody can meet those expectations... It's John Carney. I didn't know he had a new one coming out until I started preparing for this list. We've got a mother in Dublin who's raising her son, Max, a teenager. It's a little difficult. They're having a tumultuous time. She thinks maybe I'll teach him how to play the guitar or I'll buy him a guitar and he'll learn how to play and we'll bond over music. We'll give him a hobby. He doesn't seem to care. Turns out she decides to pick up the guitar. Jack Rayner, or as I like to call him, the Irish Seth Rogen, appears here as he did in Sing Street. I think he's the the father in this divorced relationship. Joseph Gordon-Levitt appears as the guitar teacher that she meets online or is taking lessons from online. And you'll never believe it, Josh. It's all filled with original music from John Carney, just like we got in Sing Street, and those songs are so brilliant. I like the sounds of what I'm getting from Flora and Son. Eve Hewson is an actress I only am vaguely aware of. She plays Flora. I saw her in Steven Soderbergh's TV series a while back, The Nick. Incidentally, she's got a musical pedigree. She's Bono's daughter. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I might give her the benefit of the doubt when it comes to playing the guitar and doing some vocal work. I was seven. 
17 with a screaming child on me like... This can't be my story. But without him, I have nothing. We're living a How come the way things are are never enough for you? They never were. I watched this trailer today with the biggest smile on my face. I cannot wait until September 22nd when it comes out in theaters. And then a week later on the 29th, it'll stream on Apple TV+. Plus. Thank you. Thank you, John Carney, for coming back after eight years. Between that and once, and Begin Again is fine, but you can't put Begin Again in the same category as the other two films I mentioned, which both made my top 10 films of their respective years. I really do have a feeling that Floor and Son is going to follow suit, Josh. All right, let's hope you didn't put the curse on it. (laughs) I may have. We like to end these previews by actually giving you just our raw list of the most anticipated films. If we could only see five movies from the fall, we're walking into the multiplex, which five would we go see forsaking all others? But before we get there, we want to go back to producer Sam's deeply flawed film spotting poll. We posed this to you a couple of weeks ago. What is your most anticipated movie of the fall? Again, using our timeline, Labor Day up to Thanksgiving. The options, Josh, were Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, October 6th. Sofia Coppola's Priscilla, which we've heard about October 26th. Denis Villeneuve's Dune Part 2. We thought it was coming out November 3rd originally. Turns out now March 15th. David Fincher's The Killer, November 10th. Ridley Scott's Napoleon, November 22nd. Or Other, you could write in your own choice. How did it come out? Other only got 1% of the vote. And this makes me shed a single tear, Adam. Sofia Coppola's Priscilla in last place of the options. Yeah. 4% of the vote. But look at the other titles. Look what, at the other titles. What the, that's no excuse. Ridley Scott's Napoleon, 5% of the vote. Fincher's The Killer, 10%. Villeneuve's Dune, part two with 26% of the vote. But man, just crushing this poll. Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, 54%. Here's Ron Phelps. Hey, Warner Brothers, thanks for screwing this poll by making Dune 2 next year. Shakes fist at Sky, Ron adds, and yes, hence the deeply flawed part of this poll. Sam nailed it up until Warner Brothers decided to mess with it. He just can't win. He's Charlie Brown kicking the football. <laughs> Poor Sam. Here's Thomas Kuzmarskis. Such a tough choice. Dune is my favorite book, and I love Villeneuve's version of the story. But in the end, I chose Killers of the Flower Moon. Scorsese's last couple of pictures, Silence and The Irishman, have been such grand personal works. And Killers looks to have the same combination of scale and intimacy that those films had. Plus, it's essentially a Western, directed by Martin Scorsese. Rory Dunn says, all these options look fantastic, but I'm going with Fincher's The Killer. Though, Mank, exclamation point, Mank! Left me wanting. Remember that? I do. Citra's Netflix series Mindhunter showed that he works amazingly well within their system, plus the much anticipated return of film spotting madness original champion Michael Fassbender. <laughs> it has to count for something, Rory says, and it does. Here's our good friend Brett Merriman. With the caveat that I'm seeing all of these movies, I'll be honest. Killer Moon looks like a slog. I'm sorry, just stop um, right there. Former stop right there. 
former Let me friend. correct that former friend, Brett Merriman. Napoleon looks kind of bad. Dune 2 looks like Dune 1, which is great, but not new and intriguing. So it comes down to Priscilla and the killer. And who am I kidding? I'm going with my boy, Finch, and Adam's boy, Fassbender, in a French comic book movie. I'll see it in a theater and rewatch it five times on Netflix. 4K, baby. Well, I love his love for Fassbender and Fincher and the killer, but otherwise he literally didn't say a correct thing in that entire (laughs) entry. He said, Killer Moon looks like a slog. He said, Napoleon looks kind of bad. And he said, Dune 1 is kind of great. Kind of great? Yeah. He's not right. He's not right. Actually, he said, it's great. He didn't say kind of. He said, it's great. I was going to say, I'm feeling kind of great. Great is a stretch. Okay. Brett's just messing with us. Here's Jonathan from Colorado. I voted Dune 2 in an earlier Facebook version of this poll for reasons both textual, love the first movie, and extra textual. It comes out on my actual birthday. So that takes care of what I want to do that day. Sorry, Jonathan, you better come up with some new plans. But you know what, he says. The more I thought about it, I decided to go with the killer. Like Brett Merriman said, it's Fincher. And it feels like it's been much longer than three years since Mank. So I'm excited. I think that's Jonathan, who we already heard from earlier in the preview, Jonathan Metz, but I could be wrong. Here's Krista. If Sophia didn't have a movie coming out this fall, my vote would be Killers of the Flower Moon all the way. But she does, so... Mm, There you go, Krista. Here's Kiwi Dan. There's a filmmaker whose movies I revisit over and over. Not every couple of years or so, but every month or so. It helps that my small children, with no encouragement from me, I swear, wish to revisit his movies over and over as well. I'm not trying to be cool or contrarian. This is honestly how I feel. Our greatest living filmmaker is Hayao Miyazaki, and my most anticipated movie is The Boy and the Heron. I'm sure Killers of the Flower Moon will be a handsome film, and I love the book, but come on, it won't be an all-time classic. We will see, Kiwi Dan. Patrick adds, it has to be the legendary Hayao Miyazaki's latest final film, The Boy and the Heron. Its refreshing lack of advertising and PR provides a welcome element of mystery in the age of trailers that reveal everything. We do have a note here. The Boy and the Heron will be the opening film at TIFF in September. We don't have a U.S. release date, which means their entries are null and void. (laughs) Pretty much. But nice try. Here's a thought from Jared M. Hernandez in Santa Barbara. Small film coming out, but I want to give attention to Radical, starring Eugenio Derbez. The plot? Based on a true story, it follows a teacher in a Mexican border town as he tries a radical new method to unlock their students' curiosity, potential, and maybe even their genius. I started my first year as an elementary teacher this fall, so I'm hoping to pick up some good pointers. I already have the Jaime Escalante quotes memorized from Stand and Deliver. Let's see if this film can rise to those heights and also be a great follow-up project by Derbez after his success with CODA. And for those who don't remember, Derbez played... The choir teacher in that best yeah. picture winning film. And finally, here's Clara. I am voting for Scorsese, but I am sure that there are armies of dads that do not feel represented in this poll as you have neglected the Equalizer 3. The dads are all right. The dads will always be all right. Don't worry well, about them, Clara. I have to look ahead to our show script here that Sam provides. I can't remember if the Equalizer is only coming out in theaters or if it's going right to a streamer. If it's on a streamer this weekend, you know I will be watching it while I fold laundry. Dad report forthcoming. (laughs) Indeed. Okay. So if you're just going by most anticipated, and I'm glad we did that poll question, the results, because I'm just going to regurgitate a lot of those titles. If I really could only go see five movies coming out between Labor Day and Thanksgiving, 
they would be in this order. I'm sorry, as they say in the gambling world, it's chalk. They're all obvious, but this is how I feel. I'd go see Killers of the Flower Moon first. I'd see The Killer second. I'd go see Napoleon third. I'd see Priscilla fourth. And I would see the aforementioned Flora and Son from John Carney fifth. What about you? A lot of killing for you. Okay. I know. I was going back and forth as we discussed this poll, teased the poll, read results between Priscilla and Killers of the Flower Moon. I think I am going with Priscilla as my most anticipated, but it is very, very close between those two. So Killers is number two. Number three, it's got to be the wonderful world of Henry Sugar. If it was a feature... If Wes had made a feature, it'd be number one. So I've got it here in number three. Then I really am so intrigued by the Haynes film, May, December, and I'm rounding out my list with Fincher's The Killer. So a couple of killers for me as well. There you have it. Thanks to everyone who voted in our poll and left a comment. Thanks to everyone who sent in suggestions for our fall movie questions. You can find our full lists, including links to the trailers at filmspotting.net slash lists. And you can send us any new feedback feedback at filmspotting.net discover why critics are calling kingdom of the planet of the apes the best film of the franchise what a wonderful day it's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible i need to go hang on it is our time kingdom of the planet of the apes now playing only in theaters rated pg-13 some material may be inappropriate for children under 13 robert de niro is a bounty hunter your mother ever teach you how to talk nice to people and not shoot at them charles Grodin is an accountant who embezzled 15 million dollars from the mob it is truly in your best interest to just relax. I'm totally relaxed. I want this guy taken off. I want him taken off fast. The mob wants him dead. Man, that made me nostalgic, not just for Midnight Run, but for movie trailer voiceovers. Yeah, those should still come get back. those like that? I'm sure they do them from time to time, but I feel like it's not as common as it used no. to be. That's from the trailer for, it says here in front of me, one of the greatest films of all time, 1988's Midnight Run, starring, as you heard, Robert De Niro and Charles Grodin, directed by Martin Brest, who gave us Beverly Hills Cop, another movie I do quite like, Son of a Woman. He also made Gigli. Midnight Run turns 35 this year. And the fact that it's turning 35 would not, in and of itself, Josh, make it necessarily a great candidate for a Sacred Cow review on the show. But Midnight Run does have the distinction of being a member of the film spotting pantheon alongside movies like citizen Kane, the Godfather sure. and in the mood for love. Why not? <laughs> Why not? The pantheon has been on our minds a lot lately, Josh, we've been kicking it around with producer Sam who helped start the pantheon began the pantheon with me when this show began back in 2005. And I think it's just been tearing them apart from the inside ever since he wants he wants more structure. He wants more meaning. He wants stakes mm. to the Pantheon. And I think he he finally has convinced me. So we've been talking about it in various production meetings over the last month or so. And finally, we did have an entire Film Spotting Advisory Board meeting slash bonus episode that we devoted to talking about the Pantheon and potentially reimagining it 
and thinking about what it would be like if we took all the current titles, but kind of started fresh, which titles would make it back in what titles would be first ballot Pantheon films. It was fun. I think it was a fun discussion, which of course our film spotting family members can access. And what do we do with midnight run? That's a pressing, a pressing question, a movie (laughs) the two of us like quite a bit from what we remember. It has Mm -hmm. just been so long since we've seen it. It does seem to stand apart from some of these other titles. So yeah, what, what is the future for midnight run with this newly envisioned Pantheon? It all starts with a conversation. We have to have a conversation about it. That really is what drives a lot of this is we started the Pantheon to force us not to bring up these titles, but we realized it's actually more fun to dive into some of these films and have those sacred cow-esque discussions. So we kind of want to make the discussion be part of the criteria. The fact that we've talked about it, we've wrestled with it anew, that's driving a lot of this. But again, I encourage people to check out that bonus show become a film spotting family member if you're not one already and listen to that. But of course, we'll have a lot more details coming out in the next month or two. Lest you doubt my midnight run bona fides, Josh, I do want to say that just yesterday, my son Quinn was going to his new high school. He takes the bus. It's it's only a few miles away, but much more convenient for him to take the bus. And My wife and I realized that he forgot something that he needed. So I got in the car and went to meet him before he went into school. And I made the handoff and Sarah sent me a text and said, how did that go? Did he get it? And I wrote back, Serrano's got the discs. So quotability is that how important is that for the Pantheon? Very, I don't very know. important. I don't know if we put a, a point scoring system, but I suspect it's quite high. Yeah. Now she didn't understand what I was saying. Yeah. And lucky wrote back Sarah. With question marks, but just I mean, another day in the life. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Next week we will give Midnight Run its moment in the sun. We'll also continue the African Cinema Marathon with 1987's Yellen. That's from Malian director Suleiman Sisse. That film, it turns out, is another one that can be a little tricky to find, and there doesn't seem to be a free version on YouTube, like with the first film in the marathon I searched. So check to see if you can find Yellen from 1987 on Canopy. Maybe your library supports it, and it's streaming there. Maybe you have a local library that has a DVD copy or can get it via interlibrary loan. It's it's one of those films that you see every time listed among the top five or ten greatest films from the continent of Africa, we felt like we had to talk about it. And I can say, Adam, for those listeners in Chicago here, I did just reserve and am going to have delivered to my local branch both a copy of Yellen and the final film in our marathon, I Am Not a Witch. So if you're in Chicago, Chicago Public Library has more than one copy. So even though I've got those reserved for myself, I think there's a couple more. So yeah, even if you're in another city, do check out your local library and they might just have one of these titles. In two weeks, we're planning another anniversary Sacred Cow review. This one is a film that is also in the Pantheon and maybe one you'll be surprised to learn that we have never given a full review on the show. It's Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused. It turns 30 this year. Yes, it's come up a lot. We always seem to forget whether or not we've given it a Sacred Cow. We also always seem to forget that it's in the Pantheon, but it is. 
it's come up on something like 13 top five lists going back to 2005, <laughs> including top five classic rock scenes and link later scenes. We go back to this one a lot. I love, love, love it. We'll see how much I love it when we get to the poll question here in a second, but we're, we're going to talk about it. This is, two weeks. this is just more evidence why we need to clean up the pantheon, <laughs> yeah. because if one of the original points was titles set aside so they wouldn't make top five lists, and then Days and Confuse has been on this many, man. Good point. <laughs> now, I'd have to go look at the list and see when we added it. it That's might true. Have, it might have been because of the classic rock scenes. That could be. That's or or the Linklater scenes that we finally put it in, Josh. Yeah. I, I think we, haven't, we haven't been totally abusing the rule. Fairly certain that... No other movie has been talked about as much as Dazed and Confused that has also not gotten a full review on the show. Probably I think it's so. got to be the champ. It feels like it to me. Yeah. Okay, so here's the poll, the new poll that this Sacred Cow discussion inspired. Sam is inviting you to save a link later and only one link later. And this is because of Dazed and Confused, but also because of the first two titles I'm going to mention, which are also currently in the film spotting pantheon. If you can save only one link later, Josh, is it Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Boyhood, Dazed, For Some Reason School of Rock is in here. Good film. Okay. It is a good film, but, you know, it just doesn't belong. Or, <laughs> or Other. And you could, you could write in Tape or The Bad News Bears as your favorite link later as the one you want to save if you want to really go against the grain. Those are your choices. How do you vote, sir? This is very easy for me. Me too. Because I have Before Sunrise absolutely on its own tier. Mm -hmm. And I imagine for most people, especially those who revere Linklater even more than I do, that this may be a Before Sunrise boyhood conundrum. So since I'm not quite as high on boyhood as most people, Before Sunrise it is for me, and that's an easy choice. Those others, Sunset, Boyhood, I think Dazed and Confused, but we will see when we revisit it, are on their own tier. And then School of Rock, I don't know. I'd have to watch it again. Maybe I, honestly, depending on Days and Confused, I might be able to bump School of Rock right up there in that tier alongside Dazed. I love those first four titles. I adore those first four titles. I see them all as virtual equals. But if I have to pick only one, I'm going to pick the one that I definitely picked to be part of the new Pantheon, to stay in the new Pantheon. And the one that I put fairly recently, speaking of other bonus content for family members, when we did our own Sight and Sound top 10 list, if we had a vote, what 10 films would we write in? Before Sunrise made my list. One of my top 10 favorite films of all time. So an easy choice for me. Not quite so easy for our listeners. We have a couple films battling it out for the essential Linklater movie over on Facebook. And Twitter, it's tight before sunset, battling dazed and confused. On Twitter, Josh, before sunset has 31%, dazed and confused has 30.5%. But that's before sunset, not sunrise. Good point. That's interesting to me. Now, I do have to at least acknowledge that it's possible our producer Sam, lovely and amazing as he is, maybe he wrote in the wrong title, but it does say before sunset. You're right. I didn't even catch that until you said it. And I do find myself unfortunately mixing those movies up sure. in my head more often than I'd like to admit. I probably just did it again. That's intriguing to me if it really is the second film before sunset, which kind of like the Godfather 2, I'll entertain arguments. It's an even better film. I'm just giving 
some kind of credence to the first movie, the movie that hooked me. As you should. Love both of them. Love both of them. And I guess I'll have to go look at those results and verify that it really is Sunset. If you want to be the vote that maybe swings this one way or another, you can vote at twitter.com slash filmspotting, twitter.com slash Sam Van Hallgren, or you can go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash filmspotting. If you leave a comment, we might just read it on air. Quick note about what they're up to on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's a new pairing. Emma Seligman's Very Good Bottoms alongside 1988's Heathers. Listeners who heard me and Mariah review Bottoms will know that's the first film that Mariah name-checked when she was talking about influences that she saw on Bottoms. So very cool that The Next Picture Show folks have picked that up. I've already listened to the Heathers episode while I was making dinner tonight. It's quite good. The next picture show is your look at cinema's present via its past. The hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. We've got some prizes to give away here, Josh. Some digital movies as East of Eden starring James Dean and One of our favorites, a movie that is in the film spotting pantheon, Rio Bravo starring John Wayne. Those are now available for the first time in crystal clear 4K Ultra HD. You can look for them on 4K Ultra HD and digital. Our producer's question for you was, which performance from Rio Bravo cannot be replaced? You absolutely refuse to imagine a world where Dean Martin isn't playing dude where Walter Brennan isn't playing Stumpy or Angie Dickinson isn't playing Feathers. Tell us which one you pick. Absolutely irreplaceable. And Josh, we have our winners who are going to get that digital movie code. We will send one to Darren. Darren said Walter Brennan's inimitable Stumpy cannot be replaced nor can any other element of Rio Bravo. Even though I've read but never seen East of Eden, rewatching Rio Bravo might take priority when this set is released. It's been too long. He says Walter Brennan's inimitable Stumpy. Has he never heard Michael Phillips' <laughs> genius imitation of Walter Brennan on this show? An inimitable imitation. He's imitable. He's- he clearly is. Christopher Tangard in Oslo, Norway, writes it and says, invaluable supporting actor, Walter Brennan. Enough said. Invaluable. Okay. Here's Michael Roche from New York, New York. I would save Angie Dickinson's feathers. Congratulations to Michael for being another yeah. winner. That's that's tough to argue with as well, Michael. Here's Tom Morris from the Good, the Bad, and the Nerdy Movie podcast. He's going off the grid. He's going Ricky Nelson. Colorado is... Very important to Chance and Dude. He is both of their paths come to help them. Yeah, Tom likes to go off the beaten path. That's not a surprise. Here's Tom Kuzmarskis. Your real Bravo actor's question is a tough one, but for me, the answer is clear. Dean Martin's performance in Rio Bravo is his best work in film. Transcendent, revelatory. He is the heart and soul of the picture. Stumpy is fantastic, but there are dozens of great Walter Brennan performances that will survive the film spotting furnace, the Colonel and meet John Doe. His helot speech is arguably the best scene in the film or his role in red river as John Wayne's loyal friend and conscience Colorado, AKA Ricky Nelson can comfort himself that he beat out Elvis. And as for Angie Dickinson as feathers, we will always have point blank. 
Thank you, Tom. Thank you to everyone who participated in that contest. And congrats to our winners. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your code to get those digital movies. That's Magaye Nyang's Mori and Miriam Nyang's Anta planning their getaway from Senegal off for adventure in Europe in 1973's Tuki Buki. Whether they ever get there, we can talk about and debate. It's the third film in our African Cinema Marathon, a survey of some of the best films produced by the continent from the 50s to the 2010s. You can follow along at filmspotting.net slash marathons. So Tukibuki, which translates as Journey of the Hyena, was directed by Senegal's Jibril Diop Mambete. It was Mambete's first feature and one of only two he made in his lifetime. He died at 53 in 1998. Tukibuki played the Cannes Film Festival, winning the International Critics Award, and is credited with being Africa's first avant-garde film. It received a restoration in 2008 as part of Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project, and it got another boost from your beloved Beyonce, Josh, in 2018, when the singer used imagery from the film, notably a motorcycle decorated with the massive skull of a zebu, in the promotion of her tour, zebu being a type of cow that is known to be found on the continent, and we see we see many of those. No one gave me a trigger warning, Josh, mm. about the first 17 minutes or so of this film Rough and what go. I could expect in terms of the treatment of cows. I'm giving that to our listeners now if they haven't seen Tuki Buki yet. Just last year, the film made Sight and Sound's 100 Greatest Films of All Time list. I think it came in, I thought it came in at 93. That's not what's in front of me in my notes, but I think it was 93. Maybe you can do a quick Google search, Josh, while I get into the rest of this. The previous film in our marathon, Black Girl, kept its protagonist largely confined to a single apartment, and her mode of expression was largely voiceover. Maybe a good place to start is contrasting that with what we get in Tukibuki as we see Mori and Anta on their motorcycle, in various vehicles, always on the move. Yeah, it looks like Tukibuki is, according to the British Film Institute, at 67th okay, place. Okay, I apologize. Right now, Sam. so... Well, Sam was wrong, too. He said 66. Okay, well, yeah, so there it is, and that is a good place to start with this film, given the context of our marathon. I mean, obviously, some similarities, not just Senegal, but this idea of France as a land of promise and opportunity. Mm-hmm. And we never get there, as I was just hinting at in Tukibuki. Um, you know, spoiler, the film ends with one of this couple. Maybe I'll leave this unspoiled. One member of this couple deciding not to go on the boat to France at the very last minute. And perhaps the most jarring sequence, the editing here, the near subliminal editing that is returning us to what you just referenced, the mm-hmm. first 30 seconds or, or whatever it is, where we are in an abattoir, where these cattle are being slaughtered graphically, viscerally, 
we're actually seeing cattle be slaughtered and Mbete is not going to hide any of that from us. The camera actually moves around to force us to watch what is happening. And not long after that, but throughout the film, um, we see that, you know, in particular, I think you could say we see that Mori is equated with those cattle who are being slaughtered. And so the ending brings us to this point of consideration and we get these flashbacks of the slaughtering and that character decides that is what is ahead for me in France uh-huh. if I go, which is very intriguing in the context of our marathon, right, Adam? Because I don't know that Tuki Buki itself gives us a hint of why that might be. Now, if we have any awareness of colonial history, we understand that yeah. France, the oppressors, are not going to be your sudden saviors, right? We understand this intellectually. But in terms of text, the movie does not give us a hint that things might not be better for this couple because they do suffer oppression here. They're outsiders. I want to talk about the various ways that they are outsiders within their own culture Mm -hmm. and traditions, separate from the French. Even if the French never showed up in Senegal, these two would be facing discrimination and oppression because of who they are. Um, But yeah, we, we know, you and I know, and listeners who have been following along on this marathon know that what's waiting for you in France isn't going to be any better. So that was just a fascinating contextual experience I had having watched Tukibuki earlier in the year before we started the marathon. I didn't have that context. And now Mm -hmm. I felt that visceral get off the boat, get off the boat (laughs) in a different way. Yeah. There's definitely a real question about whether or not what seems like the land of promise will really be that for them. And especially having the context in my case of seeing black girl and knowing that it's not going to deliver, that it's not going to be what you perceive it to be. You in part don't want them to go, but you also noted something that's very true because of who they are in terms of class and other factors They're shunned by their own people. They're shunned by their society. So you almost want them to escape because you feel like, well, it can't be any worse than what they're currently experiencing. You said that there's no real indication other than what we know now, looking back, that France might not be the answer for them or it might not be better. But there is an indication, and that indication is what you referenced. It's the continuous cuts back to the slaughter of those cattle and the association of the cattle with these characters, even in a moment that's one of the most beautiful moments in the film, which is a scene of lovemaking. We only really know it's lovemaking because Anta strips down. We see her then get down. She, she exits the camera frame as if she's maybe, you know, being embraced by someone. We hear sounds on the soundtrack that sound like they could be associated with lovemaking. And we have the water. And we have this shot that should represent total freedom and could even be this kind of act of rebellion. They're so free. This glorious scene on the water of lovemaking. And yet, what does Mambetti keep cutting to he keeps equating that with the slaughter of these cattle 
Yeah. We see An- that. And in this case, another goat that is actually, you know, yeah, being slaughtered right. in, in the- It's the goat. Yeah. You're right. It's the goat, not the cattle. But we're watching we're watching this animal getting its its throat slit. And so there is just this pessimism and this fatalism about what could happen to this couple, really regardless of where they end up. But at the end, when- one of the characters departs the ship and there's a moment where due to some involvement with the law, they've, they've broken the law to get the money and the goods to go on this ship. We hear something over the speaker about reporting to the captain. So there's an implication that if this character stays on the boat, it might not go well for them. But even at that point, Josh, I remember thinking there's no way they're both going to get away Mm. that, that just existentially, One of these characters is somehow going to feel locked into their predicament and their circumstances and not be willing to take that leap and not actually live out their dream. And you do a little bit of research and you read about Mombetti and he was someone who never left, had the opportunity, had the potential to study abroad and do different things chose to never leave Senegal. And it's just an interesting tidbit to have in mind after you've seen this film or as you're watching the film and be aware of the restlessness of these characters and this unsettled idea and this discomfort of these people as individuals in this fractured society, a society that had its identity fractured because of colonialism and This is 13 years after Senegal got its independence from France. Black Girl was just a couple of years removed. And so that plot about a woman who's now got her independence and now has a chance to go to the country that oppressed her versus now 13 years later, where you still have these lingering effects of their subjugation. And think about the conflict we get over the tradition of the African people and this new sort of modernist impulse where you've got the the character Anta who gets mad at her mother for giving away her tomatoes to a neighbor, right? She wants what, what they're due. And whether that's right or wrong, whether that person is taking advantage of the mom or not, in their tradition, we even hear her say something like, take as many tomatoes as you want. She's just sold some Mm. to another person, but that person's a neighbor. That's person, someone she has a friendship with and a connection to. And so she's willing to give her as many tomatoes as she needs, regardless of the last time she actually paid for any, but that's, that's in opposition to how the daughter thinks the daughter wants what she thinks they deserve and what's coming to them. Yeah. Which could be interpreted as a more Western capitalist. Yeah. Right. But they're, they're, they're always in motion. They are They're They're moving forward it seems, towards this this goal, as vague and as undefined as it might be, to escape, to go to France. And this idea that, that clearly is at the core of this film, that your lives can only be validated, essentially, if you're mimicking your oppressor, is, is really potent. Yeah, that, that last piece you were talking about, especially with the tomatoes, makes me think, it, it's very interesting, because it makes me think of something like Satyajit Ray's Padre Panchali, where we sensed a similar tension between the traditional and the modern. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that here also rural and urban, right? We, we see scenes in a less urban area and then in Dakar, the capital. 
as well. So there's that tension. And even how about, you know, we talked about the whistle of the train in Pather Panchali signaling the modern. And here mm-hmm. you have the hum of airplanes right. um, overhead. So, yeah, that's just as you were talking, that's something that, um, you know, I think is a, a point of comparison between those two films. Uh, you know, I I almost want to apologize when I did talk about this film earlier in the year. I described it more as a surreal comedy in some ways. And I think I compared it to like a Looney Tunes or a Wiley Coyote <laughs> cartoon. And you're right. I should have been more clear about how it opens and, you know, the extreme just graphic nature of some mm-hmm. of this at the same time, all that other stuff I described is there. And I can't wait to hear what you made of it. The way this is a wacky comedy in, mm. in a lot of respects. I mean, you have these, uh, another marathon film I'll cite is, uh, Virchit Lova's daisies with the two anarchic young women. This couple strikes me as them. They are forces, their own forces of nature within these societal setups. They're just going to disrupt things and not really have too much concern with the after effects, especially once they get on this bike together and they're trying to scrounge up this money for their trip. And they're a little ironic, but also funny touches. Like whenever they're riding on the motorcycle, we hear the Josephine Baker performance of, you know, here it's Perry, Perry, Perry. Totally doesn't make any sense with what we're seeing on the screen, but it speaks to their dreams, right? And there's something funny about that, that long set piece where they've stolen some money and, or they think they've stolen some money, we should say. Mm-hmm. And she has a cab driver bringing it to this dilapidated estate on the coast. And he's increasingly uneasy about this situation. That plays as a whole comic sequence. I just think there's a lot of humor here that could, as I'm watching it, I'm laughing, even though I'm also recognizing the dark undertones to it. Mm-hmm. How did that dichotomy mm-hmm. play for you? Yeah, I I think that's fair. I think a lot of people listening to this who maybe have just seen it or are about to watch it might watch it and think, I'm supposed to be laughing. Josh, this is a comedy. But I think think you're on to something. I think that that gets back to what I was saying, too, about that kind of restlessness. It it does make me think of a movie, now that you have said it, like Vera Chitlova's Daisies. Not quite as manic and certainly not quite as blatantly comedic, but there's a similar sensibility in its act of rebellion. The movie I thought about a lot watching it, and I'll say I haven't seen this movie that I'm going to mention in a second since film school, and I don't remember it well enough to either speak to its its similarities or differences in real detail, nor do I want to suggest, I want to be very clear, I don't want to suggest that I think this movie, even though it came out about 13 years before, that it was a tremendous influence. I think that what Mambetti is doing here is uniquely his own, and he is using a language that is very different and for very different purposes than what this other filmmaker was doing. But I thought so much, and I wonder if you did as well, Josh, I thought so much about Breathless watching this film. Hmm. I thought about Godard and I was thinking about it even before this key scene, just because of the sort of expressionistic style, the surrealism of it, throwing out all conventions of classical Hollywood cinema, the nonlinear approach that we're getting. 
But what really cemented it was my favorite sequence in the film. And I think this supports your argument about the film's humor, or at least the film's cheekiness. It's cheekiness. That's a good word. It's the fantasy sequence that starts as a real sequence Mm -hmm. when they attain the money and the clothes. So good. And Anta and Mori are now pretending to be, it starts out, they're just pretending to be cosmopolitan. They're pretending to be rich. They're maybe pretending to be like their oppressors. They're pretending to be sophisticated French people. But it turns in to something quite different where they're actually being hailed in a parade like they're like they're royalty, like maybe they're they're dictators or they're they're some kind of conquerors now in this moment. And it made me think so much of Gene Seberg and Jean-Paul Belmundo and that car and Belmundo with his hat on, you know, pretending to be a gangster, aspiring to be this image of someone he isn't. And we see this whole film was about these characters aspiring to this thing that they're not. And also employing all the different techniques, we get a lot like Cairo Station. We get this real emphasis on verite. It's all about realism. There are shots where he's clearly using non-professional actors and sometimes actors who don't know they're being filmed and people are looking right at the camera and we are just getting everyday life, but then merged with these incredible fantasy sequences and these really interesting shot choices and defying you at times to, to know what's actually happening. He's really challenging you to take away, I think more of more of a feeling and a mood watching the film than understanding any kind of cause and effect chain of events. And so that, that really struck me. And I will just say, I'll link to this in our show notes. Breathless was on my mind so, of course, before sitting down to talk to you about it, I Googled it just to see, am I, am I crazy? Has, has someone else talked about this? And actually, it turns out Davika Girish wrote a great essay a couple of years ago, 2019, I think, for the BAM blog, the, the Brooklyn Museum. And she does this piece called Beyond the Canon. And I'll read the description here just to give people a full sense of why she's connecting these films. It's no secret that the cinema canon has historically skewed toward lionizing the white male auteur. Beyond the Canon is a monthly series that seeks to question that history and broaden the horizons by pairing one much-loved, highly-regarded canonized classic with a thematically or stylistically related and equally brilliant work by a filmmaker traditionally excluded from that discussion. That double feature back in June of 2019 was Tuki Buki with Breathless. So again, I'll link to it in our show notes. If you've seen both films and you're curious and you want to hear someone smarter than me make that comparison and talk about their their points of similarity and differentiation, Davika really makes a great case. The fascinating thing about that that sequence, which I think is the Bravura moment in this film that does erupt into this parade as you described, is think about how it ends. And this connects to what you were saying about the tension between modernizing Senegal and traditional Senegal. Let's let's just put it that way. Their car, their convertible, now where they do seem to be received as heads of state of some sort, right? Mm-hmm. They pull up to what seems to be a presidential palace, and it is appears to be of Western architectural design. There are Western dressed military soldiers lined up in front of it. And these ornate gates that could be, you know, the gates of Versailles are opened and their car pauses. 
and you expect them, well, this is where the parade leads. This is where they're going to go in, right? But no, what does it do? They The car turns left away from the gates and passes some more modern dressed Senegalese watching the parade. And then suddenly you see there's a gathering of traditionally dressed Senegalese and the car stops in front of them. And at that point, we cut back to that. I'm not sure if it's it's a village or it's the same space where that goat was yes. being killed, right? And we see some of the same figures, some of the same people. Right. And so it's just another moment. And it's interesting to me that it happens at this climactic point in the film, really. Another moment that is offering a choice between modernizing Senegal or perhaps traditional Senegal, at least that's how it's reading to me. I'm sure I'm missing many things going on here, but that's how it read to me in the moment. And uh, yeah, this isn't the climax of the film necessarily. The whole sequence with the boat is still to come. But but yeah, as you were describing that parade, I was brought back to how it mm-hmm. ends and it, it does connect with some of these same threads we've been pulling on. Yeah, the sound design too. We've touched on it a little oh, bit. Oh my goodness. It's one of the so most fascinating aspects of this film. It's sophisticated and it's also another aspect of the film that's challenging in the sense that you're watching imagery and sound that are often incongruent. They, yes. they don't make sense together, suggesting that we're dealing with all sorts of different planes of reality that we have to navigate. But we get that that song you mentioned, the Josephine Baker song, which I loved because when you hear it the first time and maybe the second or even third time, you understand it as reflecting the character's aspiration. By the time you hear it 10 or 11 or 12 times, it becomes completely mocking. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Or, and, and even like a curse, it's almost like she's, she's throwing a curse at them in some ways. And yeah, just another note about sound design, you know, the moans and the cries of the cattle mm-hmm. uh, at the abattoir is used a number of times throughout the film when that's not what we're seeing, but because that opening is so explicit and we have a visceral reaction to it, not only the images, but the sounds as well. All we need to do is hear them again, and it all comes back. That's flushing right. Flushing back, right? And his use of that is is incredibly effective as well. Tukibuki is currently available on the Criterion channel as well as Max. If you see it, we would love to hear your thoughts. Feedback at filmspotting.net. The Criterion channel also has a lot of other supporting features. You can watch Contra City, which translates to City of Contrast. That's the debut short from Mambetti. There are other insights, commentary from people like Martin Scorsese. It's only a couple minutes long, but he talks about what Tukibuki means to him, as well as other luminaries. So worth checking out if you're a subscriber to the Criterion channel. Next up, we will talk about Yellen from Suleiman Sisse. That is supposed to be coming up next week, Josh. And we do remind you to maybe check your local library for that one. And to follow along with this entire marathon at filmspotting.net slash marathons. That's our show, Josh. If you want to connect with us on social media, we're at Facebook, we're at Twitter slash X, we're at Letterboxd, we're also at Threads. You can find Adam at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. The current film spotting poll has us looking ahead a couple of weeks to our Sacred Cow review of Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused. It turns 30 this year, believe it or not. We're asking you to save 
a single Linklater movie. It turns 30, but all the other Linklater movies stay the same age. Got it. Thanks. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. How can you support us? Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad free. But more than that, you'll get Sam's weekly newsletter, access to monthly bonus shows, as well as the entire Film Spotting archive. All that is at filmspottingfamily.com. And that last monthly bonus show, the one we just put out this week, our August show, really is a good one where we made it a hybrid thing. It was our Film Spotting Advisory Board quarterly meeting. We had about 23, 24 Film Spotting listeners on. We got their feedback live in the moment to what we're thinking when we talk about rethinking the Pantheon. And you hear from them. You hear us share the 30 movies that we think must be included in the new Pantheon. And we compare those lists. It's a good time. You can get that if you are a Film Spotting Family member, filmspottingfamily.com. Out in limited release this weekend, Ernest and Celestine. Now, Josh, I did some work here to try to figure out how to pronounce this word. It's Ernest and Celestine, a trip to Gibberisia. That's what I heard online. I'm going to say you're correct. Okay, thank you. It's a sequel to the 2012 film, which was nominated for a Best Animated Feature Oscar. And yeah, Dad's... Unite Denzel just destroying folks in the Equalizer <laughs> three. I'm I'm legitimately excited. Not excited enough to actually go to the theater and pay for it, but I'm excited. Well, Next week on the that's show, the world we live in now. <laughs> it is. Next week we won't be talking about the Equalizer three. Sorry, we're going to be talking about another dad movie. At least for dads who are dads now, our generation. Midnight Run at 35. It's getting the Sacred Cow treatment. And we will talk about the fourth film and our African cinema marathon. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.